Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Just going to start with a few things. You know, I've always, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of come, gone to my fail-safe teaching style today because uh, whenever, um, when all else fails, you know, I just like teaching from the book of, uh, of First Samuel. Um, I'm a huge fan of the life of David. Um, there's something about the narrative of, of Samuel where you can pretty much teach through a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of moral issues, ethical issues, without really kind of like getting lost in, in dogma and doctrine and such. Um, and sometimes that's what you need. If you're reading the Bible from day to day, the narrative kind of helps. You know, and uh, the importance of the Old Testament, I mean, like I said, it's just not the kind of popular thing within the contemporary church now. Everybody kind of wants to skip to the end and just say, well, what does the New Testament say to me? But there's something about the Old Testament because when you're talking about the person of Jesus... You know, one of the things the Old Testament reveals is that Jesus has always been there. And um, nothing kind of highlights that more than um, the book of John, where he, he opens in the beginning was the Word. And we see so many, um, not just the appearance of God, but also the very person of Jesus, you know, as manifested as the angel of the Lord. And so I think we lose so much um, when we don't teach the Old Testament because, you know, it is the whole story of God and the history of God in earth. Um, you know, and then also the historical point of view. So, you know, it's, it's the idea that, you know, these, you know, it's just too far-fetched. It's just too far away for anything to really kind of relate to me. Um, you know, we live in different times. We're a modern people, a modern age. We have different problems. Uh, you know, technology makes us better. But at the end of the day, these people loved, hated um, felt the cold, felt the warmth, just like we did. And so how they dealt with these things is, and how they dealt with their own moral issues and ethical conflicts is just as important for us today, you know. The book of First Samuel um, in particular is interesting because I, I like to describe the book of Samuel as uh, never, send, never send a man to do a boy's job, you know. And it's just interesting because really the life of the, the book of Samuel deals with two young boys who, who basically overtake the leadership of Israel. The first being Samuel himself from, from Eli and the life of David as he takes over from Saul, you know. And then you get within the lives of these two particular, these two particular people that they, their, their willingness to kind of politicize every issue, to kind of make every issue something to do with... Um, you know, I've got to figure this out. I've got to do what the people want. Means that they kind of miss the mark. You know, obviously we're not talking and we're looking at David and Samuel as being boys in the infantile sense, but we're talking about boys in the sense of they will listen to God. You know, we listen to the teaching of Jesus. He says you have to enter the kingdom of heaven as a child. And that means, you know, come in with the idea that you are not the, the boss of your life. You know, that you're not some kind of political, you know, engine that's going to try and make everything right through just signing the right policy, making the right decision based on our own faculties. Something quite different is happening in the book of Samuel. And so we see this, you know, that, you know, that the, the boyishness of, of David and his willingness to uh, obey is something quite different. And when you see the contrast between David and Saul, we see something quite interesting, you know. We see within the life of Saul that God chooses Saul, but he chooses Saul for the people. This is your king. Here's your king. And he gives them a king with bells and knobs on it. And all the selfishness, all the, 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 that is, can rise out of um, absolute power corrupting comes out of the life of Saul. But with David, 
When we come to David, his, David's life in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we see something quite different. God says to, Saul, um, to Samuel, I have chosen myself a king. David is God's king. Not in the sense that he is the king of God, but this is the person I choose to rule my people. And his wording, his approach is so much different. He has chosen the king that he knows will serve him. And the difference of David is that he listens to God more than he listens to the people. Very different approach. Where we come to him in 1 Samuel 23 is that David is on the run from Saul. Saul considers him public enemy number one, you know, as we got all these kind of, you know, um, most wanted from the CIA and most wanted from the FBI and Interpol and all the rest of it. We see that David has become public enemy number one, not, you know, of the world at this particular sense, but definitely of Israel. And not necessarily because of what the people deem him to be, but because of what Saul deems him to be. And he's on the run. And he's on the run in a way where he is very much in a transition. He's the anointed king of Israel, yet he has to live in caves. He has to sleep rough, you know. And this brings me to the title. Today, I don't know, I really never had a title, but I thought, you know what, um, it just kind of came to me. It says, you know what, if there's anything I want to put on this that will hopefully capture the big idea of what these verses mean in 1 Samuel 23 is that it's business as usual. Business as usual. You know, when you look at shops that are going through a refit, some of them just shut down completely. You've got other shops that have refits outside and it says, business as usual. They want to make sure that, they, that you realize that as much as we're going through a transition right now, we still need your service. We still need you to come in and make sure that we keep our business afloat. We can't afford to shut down for a week, two weeks, a month. And this is something that we, I, hopefully we can understand, no matter where you are in your life right now, what it means to have business as usual. Not to shut down and say, you know what, come back when we're ready. Come back when we've had that complete overall. Let's read from 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 13. Now they they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid. Here in Judah, how much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abathar, the son of Abimelech, had fled to David in Keilah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, Your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went 
wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped, had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Let's pray. Father, uh, it is always a good thing to come into, the, into your house to hear your word, Lord God. And, uh, you know, as uh, the great psalm says, Lord God, unless the Lord builds the house, you know, the workman worketh in vain. Unless the Lord watch the city, the watchman watcheth in vain. And today, Lord, if you don't teach your people, God, Lord, even I will teach in vain. And Father, we pray that you will teach your great people today what you would have, Lord. Your Spirit of God is the true teacher and the inspiration of, inspiration of our lives that we might learn and understand and grow to be obedient, Lord, and conform to the image of Christ. I pray, Father God, as much as my words will be heard, Lord, I pray your Spirit will speak in the light of all your people. We say amen. Amen. You know, the, um, the interesting thing about this, this particular chapter, as you kind of look at it, you know, David is pretty much mentioned in every single verse. He's the subject, he's the object and the subject of every single verse. David is mentioned. His name comes forth, except for 11, when David prays, where he no longer is the object of his own life. You know, Lord save David. He says, he talks to God. And so, you know, apart from verse 11, every word, every single thing has David as an object and a subject. Which says something about when people were chronicling his life, what they thought about David. You know, verse 1, and you know, we're going to go through this line upon line, but there's some things I want us to understand. As I'm going to go down, I'm going to kind of break it down with a brief headline of what, what, what the verse means. And then we're going to kind of go through it and hopefully we'll understand what this means and what this chapter of Israel's history means for us today. And verse one, we have the mission. You know, if you think of Mission Impossible, I'm a big fan of the, the original TV series. I like the, the movies, kind of. But, you know, we have that moment where you're sitting there with the mission in front of you and it's told to David and then all of a sudden the fuse is lit. Din, 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 din. Is he going to do it, you know? And then you see all the little snippets of what's going to happen. The next thing, you know, men's heads being chopped off and, you know, all that kind of stuff goes on. You know, the ephod comes out. So we've got some exciting stuff going on. And this is the beginning. This is the scenario. This is where it starts off. There is a need. There is a mission. David, what will you do? Why tell David? Why not go to Saul? Isn't Saul the king of Israel? You know, it's an interesting situation. The mission comes to David. David is told, we need you to do this. Your team, your band of men, and these are not, again, the regular army. This is David's ragtag men. This is not David under the commission of Saul anymore. This is David living with the desperate men, the men who owed money, the men that were on the run. And this is the mission. It comes to David. And this is where really the title business as usual comes because David was already recognized as a defender of Israel. As you'll see in verse 3, it's like I've got my own problems to deal with. Why do I have to deal with this? Business as usual. The mission, should you choose to accept it, Verse 2, the initiative of David. The initiative of David is that, you know, every day things come to us and we can either say yes or we can say no. But the initiative of David is that let's go and find out what God will have me do. Now, at this point, we don't know whether David was eager to do it or he wasn't eager to do it. That's beside the point. The fact is he wants to know what God wants him to do. There is our first understanding of who David was. God, what would you have me do? History doesn't record whether he was for or against it. God, what would you have me do? And this is what happens. Things come, and I, I know as announcements, even as a local church go out, and it's like there's a need, and you know, will people step forward? And this is something that we need to learn. Do we go and pray about it? Do we go, God, would you have me do this? Lesson one. 
The initiative of us as believers is, is it like David's? Is it to say, God, would you have me do this? Truthfully, tell me. We're never negative. We always kind of, we are, if we are honest to ourselves, we always fall one side or another. We're never really truly in the middle. We'd either prefer not to or we really want to do it. But God, what would you have me do? Is the initiative that we all need to take, not just David. Verse 3. The impracticality of David. The impracticality of David and his faith. You know, this is where we pretty much sit. At the end of the day, the, the men look at him and says, we are barely safe where we are. We are barely safe here. How can I go and start fighting someone else's battles? It's an impractical thing. I mean, let's just cutch. Let's hide out. Let's just chill. It's uncomfortable, but you know what? Let's just do this. Because right now, I'm not paying any debts. My man can't kill me. And you know what? Let's just chill. And so they question his impractical thing, that I have to go and do this. You know, faith is not a risk, but it looks risky, even irresponsible to the faithless. If you as a faithful person is trying to do something that the Lord has put on your heart, it will always look risky to people who don't have faith. It will seem irresponsible. Like, you can't really do that. You, you, you're putting these people in danger. You're putting yourself in danger. You're putting your family in danger. That just doesn't even make any sense. But faith in God isn't risky. It isn't risky because it's faith. It's not a risk. It's not like a 50-50 thing. Even if we go to our death, it is what God will have us do. Jesus didn't take a risk by going to the cross. It wasn't like, maybe they'll kill me, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll change their mind. The path of faith is a non-risky endeavor. Its outcome is set. And God sets our heart to meet that. Hence, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, Lord, even if you do not deliver me, it's cool. It meets the task. And this is where we're at more times. Lord, this is an impractical thing. How can I go? How can I do this? Verse 4. I titled, The Consistency of David. So now, having been given the people's opinion, and as we go back and figure out who David is in light of 1 Samuel 16 verse 1, now we have something quite different because David doesn't go, hmm, yes, yeah, true, let's just call a conference on this and call a conference. He goes back to God. God, will you have me do this? Will you have us do this? The consistency of David is not to look at the problem from another angle and try to see if there's another solution. It's straight back to the same thing. God, either we go or we don't. Will you have me go? And God confirms to him yet again. It's at this point, it's considered that it's probably the prophet Gad who is still with him. Who is helping him to commune with God. And this is not obviously to say that David can't hear from God, but he is getting a lot of help. But again, David is the active object and subject of every text. Because David is initiating this thing and he is responding to God. The consistency of our lives has to be measured that do we try to find a different solution when we're faced with other people's dilemmas with the way that we're looking to resolve things. I.e., all right, okay, maybe prayer ain't going to work this time. Maybe we just have to do a, a vote. Um, yeah, all those in favor. He doesn't do that. If you're going to be David's man, 
you are going to be God's man. It's plain and simple. To be David's man is to be God's man. We're going to do what God wants, not what you want to do. You know, we consider the persistent, when we look at the persistent widow in um, the illustration of Jesus about the person who consistently went to ask for the judge to get her petition met. And this is one of the things we have to learn, the consistency of prayer, the need to pray, the need to be consistent in our prayer lives and not to try and find any other first step. Verse 5, the victory of David. They go. And obviously we can see that these verses are covering over, are skipping huge chunks of time. But he comes and he's the victory. And it's not David and his men's victory, it's David's victory. You know, when, when, when a battle is won, you know, people normally kind of point to the author of the victory and they kind of go as much as everybody played a part it's that person's victory this person was the person who inspired us to get the victory without them it wouldn't have happened ultimately the victory is the Lord's but David has been marked as the victor in saving Keilah you know that's interesting because when we kind of look at the history you know, the Philistines, you know, who the Philistines represented, and maybe even the fact that David and Saul had gone different ways, it's been suggested by commentators was the reason why the Philistines even attacked in the first place. Ha, David's not around anymore. I will need to find David shows up again. Surprise. You know, the Philistines at this particular point in Israel's history are like the ultimate ne- nemesis of the Israelites, you know, when we think of, you know, superheroes and their ultimate nemesis, you know, we have Batman and the Joker, you know, chaos and order, you know, Lex Luthor and Superman, you know, ultimate corruption and ultimate goodness. This is the contrast that the Philistines were, they they were arch enemy, they were their ultimate enemy. And it was a cultural war. When you really look at what Goliath was saying back in chapter 17, they were initiating a cultural war. Our God is better than your God. Come, we are better than you. It wasn't just another nation looking for territory. This was a people that wanted to prove they were better than the Israelites. Surprise, surprise, David shows up. And they get a victory. Verse 6, we see Abathar come into the midst of David whilst they're at Keilah. And this I title, The Growing Fortune of David. You know, we're going to go into a little bit about what it, ha- what it means to persecute the church. Or what it means to persecute the people of God. You know, David's faithfulness here is again another links to another biblical principle that he who is faithful in a little will be made lord over much. His faithfulness here has not just brought him the prophet Gad and the priest, but now Abathar has now come to him. If we go back to the chapter before this, we've realized that the, the priest, the Levitical priest um, city has been wiped out by Saul. Just because Saul suspects that they helped David. So he wipes them all out. He kills man, woman, and child. When you persecute the church and when you see within the history that you will lose, that nation will ultimately lose the very thing that preserves it. If it persists in persecuting the church, it will lose the very thing that it needs to sustain itself. It's not long before a nation loses its link to the people in compelling them to be moral. 
Because you've given them no reason for morality anymore if you say there is no God, there is no ultimate purpose in life, it's just what we do. And this is what Saul is doing right now. He has shown no regard for the people of God and for the priests of God, and he has wiped them out. And so now they are going to David. Now they are building up David. David is now growing because now he has a priest added to him. David can inquire of God directly through the priest now. Saul can't. So the growing fortune, when you are faithful, God will add on to you. It's not prosperity gospel, but he will add on to you. It's prosperity gospel in its real context. Even as John says, may you prosper, may you prosper, even as your soul prospers. And this is the beauty of when you are faithful, because God can now add on to you. Abiphar knows that David will protect him. David respects the word of God. And so he goes. Verse 7. The misfortune of David. And there's a question mark after that. Is he really misfortuned? He now hears of a plot. This is an intelligence war going on, you know. Saul hears about what David's doing. David hears about what Saul's doing. There are many people committed, no less than Jonathan, the very, Saul's very own son, who is committed to letting David know what's going on in the plans of Saul. And so he finds out that what's going on. And so you, you know, and we go through life where all of a sudden like, we hear about plots against us and now we come to a real challenge, you know. You know, has David's kindness led him into a trap? I mean, do our good deeds really put us into, a, into difficult predicaments? Are we now in a situation where we can say, well, Lord, it, there's, there's, no, there's no good in doing good? You know, if you're a reader of the Psalms, you'll see that there are many times where David kind of explores this theme of, is it really worth doing good? Because the people that do wickedness just seem to prosper. And then I'm trying to do good, and I'm just living the hard life. And this is what we have to face today. Our kind deeds seem to put us in more, in, in, in more stuck. This is, this is not really helpful. Are we really misfortunate? Or is there now momentum for continuing on in good works? You know, you hear about a man who's coming to kill you. And we're not hearing about a man who's coming to kill you who is not just a small talker. This is a person who is a formidable warrior himself and has the command of the whole host of Israel. To hear that this guy is coming to kill you is not to hear something small. It's like hearing that Jane, you know, that... Um, Mr. Cameron is now coming for you and he's sending the SAS after you. He's sending the armed forces after you. They're coming for you. And we say, God, is this worth it? And we do throw up for less, obviously a lot, considerably less. We throw up our hands and we go, you know what? Is it really worth doing these things for God if it just puts us in situations like this? The difference with David is not afraid of Saul. The reality is that Saul is more afraid of him. And you read through the book, you'll understand that this is not a small statement. When you trust in God, who do you fear? Psalms 27. Who shall I fear? Who? Paul's testimony. Who can separate us from the love of God? Who can? There's an accent on that. Who? Who? Who should you fear when your hope is in the Lord? 
There's nobody to be feared when you understand that with the completeness of your own heart. Who can you fear? Verse 8, the plot against David. You know, it's an interesting contrast, you know, and, um, and this one I just want to look at the kind of the uneconomical nature of sin. You know, <laughs> the irony of the situation is that Keilah really needed Saul to stand up for them. They really needed this army to have come before. But Saul doesn't see it as being important to send the army to save a Judean village or a Judean town. It seems to be quite a big one because it has a walled city. Because, well, you're all for David, aren't you? All you Judeans are all alike. You all look after each other. You're all in this against me. So I ain't going to send anybody to deliver you. But I'll come there for David. I won't spare, I will spare the army the rigor of coming to defend you and save you from the Philistines, but I will come for David. The words of Samuel have come to light in such an interesting way because now Saul is using the army for his own personal gain, his own personal vendetta. I will use this for my benefit and not for the people's benefit. The king will be selfish has come to pass. If he hasn't stepped over the line in the last chapter, he certainly has stepped over the line now because now he says, not worth saving a, you know, not worth saving a town, but capturing David? Cool, let's go. Let's get the army together now. We're ready to march. You know, the uneconomical nature of sin means that when you get into issues of wrath and, you know, and hatred and vengeance, all the rest of it, you will spare no expense. Youths today, the same thing, will spare no expense to get even. I'm going to fix this. Where all reason goes out the window. The issue with sin is that, and this type of selfishness, is that it is mean on virtue. Gives very little to virtue, but lavish on vice. I, won't really, I can't really spare much to kind of be kind and to, to do the things that are really right. But like, to do the things that are wrong, spare no expense. Apply it in there. Put people's lives on the line. I don't care. It's about what I need to get right now. And I want this dude dead. The uneconomical nature of sin. Maybe we consider what this means for our lives when we Consider how we weigh our own resources, where we place our resources, how we develop our own accountability to God with what he has given us. Verse 9, we go back to the consistency of David. A new situation has arisen. David's aware that the plot to come and get him and capture him in the city is a very real thing. David now wants to find out how real it is, how much he should, what should he do to prepare? What is Saul? I mean, as much as he's got the intelligence, because he's already heard it in the last, in the last verse, um, in verse 7. But now he wants to confirm whether the intelligence he's heard is real. You know, maybe something Tony Blair should have done, eh? <laughs> Let's see if this is real. <laughs> I'll make no direct reference to that, you know, that people use resources to that. But it's worth considering, though, isn't it, to their own gain. 
but that's not my fault or my intention at all, but just to look at the history of Israel and understand what it means for us today. I think there's no time for us to start pointing the finger at bigger fish. But the consistency of David is not just to take the, the, the intelligence at its face value. Saul's coming. The consistency of David is to go back to consulting the Lord. Lord, is this true? Is this something I should react to? What should I do next? How can I trust the people that I have just saved? You know, when you begin every day in prayer, when you face every turning point in your life, no matter how minor or how major, and your first initiative is to pray, you can never go far wrong. I will say the only question you get really is how you pray. But we'll come into that in the next verse. But this particular is prayer. The consistency of David is let me see what God has to say about what I've just heard. And now he has Abiphar to give him the yes and the no's. The ephod is a reference to the fact that he now has access to something which is called the Urim and the Furim. The priest had what is uh, historically known to be a black and a white stone. How accurate we don't, that is, it's not conclusive. But within this, they could, you could ask the priest of God a question and it would either answer in a yes or a no fashion depending on what stone was drawn out of the ephod. So a question would be asked, hence we get that question in the verse. Is Saul going to come? And will the people betray me? You know, verse 10 and 11 cover the details of this prayer. And I title these verses... The wisdom and prudence of David. You know. Successful prayer is birthed from asking the right questions. Making the right petitions. Read James 4. You ask and you do not get because you ask amiss. God's desire, God's heart is to answer prayer. You need to understand that. Our prayer life is never a give or take kind of thing, a 50-50 kind of thing. If we pray with the heart, believing that we're going to get an answer, believing that what we've asked for is from the heart of God. And this is the prudence of David, the, the foresight to kind of say, God, how do I plan for the next day of my life, for the day that is before me? How do I plan for the week that's ahead of me? How do I plan the next month, year, five years, decade? How do I draw my plan? Lord, let me ask the right questions so that I might be prepared. And God will reveal. The wisdom of David is that he has the ability to know that he needs to talk to God about this and how he answers those questions. So that when that Urim and that Furim comes out, he knows exactly what God is saying to him. Verse 12 brings us to the dilemma of David. says we really need to understand this in the light of the previous chapter and if we go back to chapter 22 of the same book we see something interesting as I said he is David has been told and obviously has heard first-hand accounts of Saul's wiping out of a complete Levitical town this is the same town that actually had housed the, um, the tabernacle as well so Israel has no tabernacle at this present moment in time because of Saul's actions. There's no place of worship, no place of sacrifice. 
And before we judge the men of Keilah too harshly, we probably have to understand what they had to go through in this part of history that never happened. But what they, the dilemma that they would have had to go through when they found out that this is a guy that doesn't even spare priests. Their wives and their children. This is the kind of despot we're dealing with. A despot that will eventually show that he will now go to mediums at some point. Won't even consult the living anymore. And so the prudence again of, and the wisdom of David is that he tries to find another way. And him having the foresight to say, God, what shall, what's going to happen? And then David can now respond. And David is not going to hang around for this to become a bigger problem. You know, that's the gift of a good prayer life, is that if you go and you say, Lord, what shall I do? What's going to happen? And I don't necessarily mean this like, you know, as people do, you know, I want to know the future and I want to know the history of, of what's going on and who's this person in front of me and whatnot, as we might consult selfishly the wisdom of God. But when we see a situation that God says, you know what, you need to avoid that. This is what this is about. This is about how do I pray so that I can avoid a bad situation, a situation that, could, that, that is bad but could get worse. And David will not put the men at Keilah in that type of position where they're going to have to choose between him and Saul. It's not fair that David has just delivered them only to have Saul show up and threaten their wives and children again. I will not do that to you. You know, when we think of what's probably going on here is that David and his men are quite comfortable in the city of Keilah right now. You know, if we think of um, maybe um, the World War II and the, um, the Allies liberating the, the towns of the France and, and Italy and, and as they're going through and they're liberating these cities, we see all the people quite happy, you know, like the Germans are gone and, you know, ah, everyone's quite happy, women kissing everybody and, you know, you know and the food and then the guys are coming in and they've got beds to sleep on. You know, people cooking them food, they're not sleeping rough anymore. Our comfort could wind up biting us on the bum. And it's a, no doubt a tough thing for David because now he's under the divine revelation of God, knows what's going to happen next and wants to avoid a bad situation. It's a tough thing for David to look around at his guys and says, guys, we got to go back into the wilderness. We have to go back into the caves. All these things are dilemmas. And they're dilemmas when we understand the human nature, the same problems that we go through today, David's dealing with them right there. If I stay here, it's going to get worse. Let me come out of my comfort zone so that things won't go that way. Again, New Testament principle. Do everything that we do. Strive to make peace. David is not going to hang around and let Keilah come into his problems. He's going to act responsibly. I will not let it come to that. We need to sometimes pray about some of the situations we are in. And come out of a comfort zone which will eventually come and bite us on the bum. And respond to it. I will not let it come down to this. It's also for David to realize that winning a battle doesn't necessarily mean winning a war. You know, we come to these great places in our lives and we feel like we've re reached a nice little plateau and all of a sudden we want to chill. You know, David, again, the bigger picture is that we've just won a battle. We ain't won nothing yet. We just got across the road. We ain't made it into that place where we need to be. 
No time to sit on laurels. Verse 13. The peace of David. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. David, being an able warrior, a man who can fight for himself, decides that he will be as wise so that he won't have so he will have the opportunity to be harmless. He didn't want to put himself and set himself up for a situation where he's going to have to fight his way out of it. David was a shepherd of the people and realizes that having saved them today, he's now preparing to save them for tomorrow. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out, as he, were, as he said, as sheep among wolves. If you're going to take care of people, you really need to take care of them. You need to think of their interests. And this is why we get, again, the great New Testament theme that you're looking after the interests of others and not just of yourselves. Again, if we look back to verse 3, you know, let me just, let's just sit here and chill, you know. Keela, you know, a few men die. We're in our own situation. Hence the title, Business as Usual. David was used to defending the people, but he thought about how he could keep them safe. You know, the dilemma of um, Cain was that he really didn't see himself as his brother's keeper. And that's the issue of sin, Genesis 4 right there, is that we don't really feel that we're there to kind of help other people. You know, I'm going through my own stuff, man. I ain't helping nobody. I'm doing my own thing. The wisdom of God and the consistency that you need to develop in your life is a prayer life that will help you to commit to the right things. Should I help? Or as a popular Old Testament term, should I go up? Should I go do this? This is not about a selfish life anymore. This is about having the foresight to not just provide for yourself, but to provide for other people's comfort and other people's safety. Let's bring this back to Christ. David is a type of Christ, and this is why the Old Testament is so important. Even when you don't see the image of Christ or the person of Christ represented in the angel of the Lord, we see people acting as types of Christ. Whether it be Joseph, whether it be Joshua. A type of Christ is not to say that somebody is a Christ, but it basically just means that they're a savior of the people. You know, David's effect on Israel saved them for the time that he lived. It was not an everlasting effect. Israel lived with the promise that a savior will come and save them eternally. David was a savior with a small S. Jesus was the savior with the big S. Not as Superman wears, but as the only true son of God can wear. He was the saviour of the people from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus, like David, or David, like Jesus, came from a place of comfort, came from a place where he had his own objectives, has his own glory, and descended into someone else's situation to save them. He graciously gave them something they didn't really deserve, but came out of his comfort zone to save men. To be a believer is to do no less. To be called is not necessarily to live the life of David or even to live the life of Jesus, but to let Jesus live that life in you. This is exactly what this is about the Spirit of God living in the life of David and living in the lives of us today. Making those decisions where we now.
become a saviour with a small f. To save the lives of many. In the words of Joseph, God had put me in this position to save the lives of many. And it's all because of God. All because of the grace of God in our lives. So what does business as usual mean for you? Are you going to shut up shop? Tell everybody, I'm not doing anything at this moment in time. Come back when I'm ready. Or do we take off ourselves, even when it's the last of ourselves, because God has compelled us to do so and give off ourselves even that which we don't even really have? Will we come out of our own comfort zones that somebody might enter theirs? This is the life of a Christian, to be Christ-like. We are no less called to be types of Christ than David or Joseph or Joshua. This is the reason why I love the Old Testament, because we see their lives played out. They're not perfect lives, but they're lives that were committed to God. Are you no less committed today? Is there not a call? Or as David said, is there not a cause? Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious, you are so true, you are so perfect, and you are so wise. Father, we listen to your spirit today. We pray for your grace to become um, added to our lives so that we might extend it to others, Lord. We thank you for what we're able to understand about not just the life of David, but the life of David in you and what that meant, their father, for the salvation of Israel in his time. And God, and what that could mean for our communities today, for our nation, even for the world at large, dear God. When, you, when we add your grace to our lives so that we might do the same for others. Lord, we become saviors in a small s, Lord, and we look to that. We ask for your help today that we might understand the words, dear Lord, that we might not misapply it, that we might rightly apply it, Lord God, and, we, and that we might even understand that, that knowledge that is not applied can never become wisdom, but knowledge applied will become wisdom, Father, if we follow it faithfully. Lord, help us to be obedient, I pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.